and commissioning Moses to return to Egypt in order to deliver the children of Israel out of the evil hand of Pharaoh. In Exodus 4, for the very first time, God refers to this ragtag nation of slaves as being, quote, his firstborn son, and therefore himself, God, as being their father in heaven. First reference of this. In fact, utilizing what would be this father-son dynamic in order to kind of define and clarify his relationship with the Hebrews, something you'll find all over the Old Testament scriptures. In addition to other uh, analogies like a, a, a husband and a wife, you have this father-son. I'll give you an example. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, the prophet declares, You, O Lord, Jehovah, are our Father, our Redeemer. From everlasting is your name. By my count, on 17 occasions, throughout the Sermon on the Mount that covers Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus will echo this refrain, this ancient refrain of God being our Heavenly Father. 17 times he'll do this with one very interesting twist. He personalizes it. Now, now what makes this so revolutionary? And if you were there on the hillside listening to Jesus speak, radical, foreign, was the reality that instead of just referencing God as as the father of the children of Israel, which is something you, you understood, you related to, this broad application, Jesus in this sermon He's bringing this relationship down to an individual level. Our Father. Your Father. Again, it would have been radical. And one of the central components to Judaism was this wide chasm that existed between God and His people. At Sinai, the presence of God descended from heaven to earth in order to give Moses the law. And yet the people... While they could see the spectacle, they were forbidden from even touching the mount, lest they die. Then once God's presence, His glory finally comes and rests upon the Ark of the Covenant, it was only the priests who were given access to the inner courts of the tabernacle. And of these priests, of these men, it was only the high priest who was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and that but once a year. It's true, the Jewish people understood that they were the children of God. But the nature of the relationship they had with God as their Heavenly Father was at best distant. Sure, they knew a lot about God. A lot about God. Because of the revelation He had provided through His Word. But there was nothing personal. Nothing experiential about their relationship with Him. Even in Jesus' day, God. How was God approached? Well, you had to go and travel to the temple And you had to make a sacrifice, and that sacrifice had to be done through a priestly intermediary. Hardly personal. And when Jesus spoke of God, another thing that makes him so revolutionary is that he spoke of God unlike anyone had ever spoken of God before him. He refers to God as his Father. And he, his Son, From Jesus' perspective, God was not distant from him. God was not separate. There was no divide. The two were one, and the one, two, Jesus and his Father had a very personal, intimate relationship that he didn't keep a secret. Amazingly, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was subtly telling his disciples 
that this relationship with God, God as a father that he enjoyed, would soon be something they would be able to enjoy as well. Now we understand that this would not fully uh, manifest until the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is telling his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that as his followers, God would be their father. His throne room would be open. He would be accessible. In Romans chapter 8, Paul picks up this thought. He says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. God as a Father. And over the last several verses, Jesus has illustrated how this personal relationship with God the Father should have a radical impact on your religious expression. Why? Because it changes your internal motivation. That's what Jesus has been talking about really throughout this chapter. You see, the Christian, we're to be generous. Why? Well, we're generous not to earn God's favor or because we have to. We're generous because we want to. We're not trying to earn God's acclaim or earn man's attention. As a child of the Father in heaven, generosity, according to what Jesus has said, should manifest as just a simple reciprocation of his love and all that he's given. Meaning you, should, you could really care less who knows or doesn't know about it. Continuing the same idea regarding prayer. Instead of your prayer being this public spectacle, intending to project some type of great spiritual connection with, with God because he's your father. The only audience you care about when you pray is his. His and, and his alone. You could care less who sees or knows. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut the door, pray to your father. Why? Who is in the secret place. In the end, Jesus, he's highlighting for us in this section of the Sermon on the Mount the differences, the real differences, the tangible, noticeable differences between a hypocrite who's just pretending to be spiritual and the individual who is enjoying an amazing, radical, revolutionary relationship with God the Father. Religion versus relationship. Let's pick up where we left things off last Sunday. Verse 14, Matthew 6. Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, in a lot of ways, these two verses present another perfect example of how losing sight of the overarching purpose for Jesus' sermon, can lead to faulty conclusions and even applications. Like, don't forget, I'll, re I'll repeat. This dissertation was not for the unsaved multitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, the intended audience, was his disciples. As such, Jesus, at no point in the sermon, is explaining how to be saved. 
Instead, Jesus is explaining how you should live after you've been saved. Understand, Jesus isn't saying here that you need to forgive men their trespasses in order for God to forgive you. As if ultimate forgiveness of sin was somehow tethered to your work. Rather, Jesus is pointing out to his disciples that this willingness to forgive others should be the natural reaction, the natural response of a person who's been forgiven by God. I like the way that Martin Luther King Jr. defined forgiveness. He said forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means, rather, that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst, creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. Said another way, forgiveness is the needle that knows how to mend. I like that a lot. Christian, there is no avoiding the reality that the knowledge of all that God has forgiven you of. Think about it for a moment. You don't deserve the forgiveness. He did it anyway. That knowledge, the totality of all that God has forgiven you, right, should be in turn, logically, all the motivation you then need to forgive others freely. And sometimes even to forgive others at a great expense to yourself to your pride, to your sense of self-rightness. Never forget the ultimate demonstration of forgiveness was Jesus, who laid down his life so that, and it blows my mind, you could be forgiven. He was just creating the pathway. You still had to choose to accept it or reject it. He acted first and risked it not being reciprocated. Verse 16 Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance or, or literally a sullen disposition. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, and again, the disciples, when you fast, anoint your head. This is an ancient way of, of saying wash your hair. Like, and wash your face, clean yourself up. Wash your hair, shave, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. According to the law, the only time that the Jewish people were actually commanded by God to fast from food occurred during the Day of Atonement. This particular custom was called the Fasting Day in Jeremiah 36.6. It was later known just in Acts 27.9 as the fast. One day a year, the people were commanded to fast, that being on the Day of Atonement. Now, aside from this yearly mandate, we do know from extra-biblical sources that the Pharisees, especially during Jesus' day, they didn't fast just this one time a year. No, they fasted not just once a week, but twice a week, even though God never asked them to do this. These men, Jesus says, with a sad countenance, they would deny their body, physical sustenance, as this demonstration of, of their piety, of their dedication and devotion to God. And again, the whole exercise, according to Jesus, 
intended to project some image. Not only is Jesus unimpressed by their antics, but did you notice what he does? He actually accuses the Pharisees of faking even that exercise. He says that while they claim to be abstaining twice a week, notice the hypocrites disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. There's a a word that kind of comes from my days growing up in the 90s. We would call this a poser, a total poser. Now, since Jesus is going to provide a more expansive teaching on the topic of fasting in particular, in Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to hold off my commentary until then. That being said, what I do want to focus on, what I do want to point out and expound upon, is that now for the third time, if you noticed, third time in this chapter, that Jesus has emphasized, you know, this relationship we have with God as our Father, happening where? In the secret place. Third time this is repeated. And as a general rule of thumb, when you're studying the Bible on your own, anything that's repeated that frequently demands a little consideration, a bit of attention, almost as though Jesus is wanting you to understand what he's saying. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of reasons that people, you and me, all kinds of reasons that we keep things a secret, right? Sometimes it's a good thing we keep it a secret. Sometimes it's a bad thing that we keep a secret. But we all have secrets. And yet when I consider the statement, Jesus saying of the Father that he's in the secret place, I think of this just true vulnerability that he's articulating. Think of a hidden diary. I've never had a hidden diary, but I hear those exist. And what I hear about them is that hidden diaries are Again, hidden, they're concealed, they're secret. They're the one place that you go and truly express yourself. In a hidden diary, it's just you. So you actually give your raw thoughts, your real emotions. Everything is trained. That's why it's hidden. That's why people freak out if a, if a secret diary is, is discovered at home. I, I'm a homebody. I love being at home. Home is a safe place. And as a result, with no one around, home is a place that you can let your hair down. You can be your true self. You can act in ways that you'd never act anywhere else. The secret place. What I love about this repeated phrase is that it really affirms two important things that you should know about God. First, and I'm going to personalize it, What this tells me is that God truly knows me. He's in the secret place. So he knows me. Like the real me. Not the public persona. Not a projected image. Not even, I mean, as close to the realest version of me that I allow my most trusted friends to see. He sees me. Everything. There's no veil. Nothing about me can be hidden from a God who exists in a secret place. And before God, my Father, I'm laid bare. You see, there's no thought, there's no feeling, there's no desire I can conceal. I'm sure you can relate. But since we all long to be accepted, there are certain things about myself that I keep a secret. I keep a secret out of fear, right? Of being rejected. 
or embarrassed. And yet, while the idea of my heavenly Father being in the secret place and knowing everything there is to know about me is scary. Can I get an amen? I'm absolutely amazed, and this leads to the second point, that even knowing everything there is to know about me, God still loves me anyway. How amazing is that? Again, speaking to his disciples, Jesus continues, verse 19, He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, so contrary to that approach, Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And why is that important? Well, Jesus answers this rhetorical question. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me begin by defining what Jesus is referring to when he uses this word treasures. It's a central word to what he's, what, to what he's articulating. And contrary to what you might think, the word is much broader than treasure. <laughs> treasures. It's much broader than money or even riches. Furthermore, it's important to extrapolate. It's, it's inappropriate to extrapolate from the text as a result some notion that God is saying or prohibiting you from saving money. Some people have taken this statement, do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth, riches on earth, as like some prohibition against saving money or making financial investments or even having like a retirement plan. Like not only is that kind of just a total overreach to the text, but it, 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 def- it defies the wisdom we find all over the place. I'll give you one example in Proverbs. Proverbs 6, verses 6 and 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So the ant has a savings plan, a retirement, retirement idea, right? So this is not a prohibition against saving, planning for the future. Instead, the word here, where your treasure, this word treasure, it can be translated more accurately as treasury. Or another word would be storehouse. In Greek, this was the place that you would store anything that was precious to you. Anything that was of value, you would store in a treasury. In our day, think of it as being a bank or an investment house or a safety deposit box. With this in mind, a more helpful way of reading these verses to understand what Jesus is saying would be as follows. Do not establish your treasury on earth, your safety deposit box, because the things you value will be unsafe and vulnerable. Instead, establish your treasury in heaven where the things you value can be protected and preserved. Now realize, the point that Jesus is making wasn't really about the location of your treasury being established in heaven or on earth. But rather, the point he's making is what the location of your treasury says about the type of things that you value most. That's what Jesus is getting to. Like, as such, let me paraphrase what Jesus says in verse 21. You know what a person values or treasures. How? By where they choose to establish their treasury. 
Now, while this could easily develop into a study of its own, the Bible indicates that there are only four things that transfer from this life into the next. Again, this could be its own study. I'm going to go very quickly. One, your identity, like who you are, your personality, your quirks. Like who you are will transfer to heaven. It's not just that you have a heavenly body, but you have an identity. You are you. Also, you'll be able to take memories, memories you've made. Like you'll know other people. You'll be able to recall life experiences. Thirdly, people. You know, you can take people to heaven with you. Any family, friends who also accept Jesus as their Savior will go to heaven. Lastly, one's service to King Jesus, which is a little bit of an interesting one because it's not just that your service goes to heaven, it's that your service on earth will be rewarded in heaven. There are rewards based upon your service. It's not through your works that you get to heaven, but it is by your works that you're rewarded when you get there. So these four things, your identity, your memories, people, and your service. I bring that up because knowing what will and will not transfer from this life on earth to the next one in heaven should have a significant impact on where you spend your time, invest your energies, and utilize your resources. Are you a good investor or a bad one? You see, if your heart is centered in heaven, on eternity, on what lasts, it will radically alter the things that you come to value here on earth. That's what Jesus is saying. Likewise, you can learn a lot about a person and what they really value when they're they're drive. They're consumed with with a worldly success or they're obsessed with the accumulation of worldly possessions or they're driven to accumulate greater wealth. The irony is you can do that. You can make a treasury on earth and you can fill it to the brim. The problem is when you die, it stays there. And you go to heaven without it. So think about it. That's what Jesus is saying. Brilliantly. Where a person makes their investments, whether it's on earthly things or what will transfer to eternity, will will reveal what a person values the most. (laughs) President Joe Biden, he repeats a lot of lines. But he has one line that he goes to that I like. Got to give him credit for it. And it's a line that he repeats something that was told to him by his dad. His dad always told him, he said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. It's true, isn't it? In the context here of our treasury, being on earth or in heaven, which, as we've noted, reveals what a person truly values, Jesus continues, verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I will admit to you, I have wrestled on these few verses. It's not exactly cut and dry. These are kind of complicated ideas. So let's just work through them quickly, one at a time. One line at a time. Jesus begins, look at it. The lamp of the body is the eye. So let's start there. We know that it is through the eye that we see and process the world around us. It's why people that can see have an advantage over people who are blind. Spiritually speaking, we know that the eye 
is the gateway to the soul. We should protect what we allow our eyes to see. Because what we allow our eyes to see is what our mind then begins to chew on. The eye is the gateway to the soul. The things allowed to enter a person's mind through the eye impacts the soul. And what's in the soul will inevitably emanate out through a person's eyes. Isn't that true? I know that's kind of a weird thought. But there's a reason we call it the evil eye. You ever gotten the evil eye? Or, or in the marital context, the stink eye? The, we should have left two hours ago, I was sending signals to you that you didn't see? I had this conversation with Jessica. She was like, I was sending you the signals. I was like, I didn't see them. I was like, here's a better idea. Why don't you use words? Hey, we should go, honey. I got that one. I, I didn't, you didn't need me to interpret anything. We're leaving. She said so. The boss laid down the gauntlet. The eye, the, the stink eye, the evil eye. You learn a lot by seeing someone's eyes. Like you can tell that someone's had a really terrible week by looking at their eyes. The gateway to the soul. This is what Jesus is beginning, this, this idea. The lamp of the body is the eye. You see into the person through the eye. And since this is the case, Jesus explains, if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Now this Greek word that we have translated as good has two different meanings. Both are applicable. The word can mean single, as in singularly focused. It can also mean to be sound or to be whole, to be well. In the context of the previous verses, Jesus is saying that if the focus of our mind's eye is on heaven, heavenly things, the right things, good things, then every other component about your body and how you operate on earth will function accordingly. If therefore your eye is good, the body is full of light. Everything is good. But, so in contrast, if your eye is bad, so you're not focused on the right thing, singularly focused, Jesus says your whole body in turn will be full of darkness, covered in darkness. If therefore the light that is in you, so if this is the case, is, is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, like in the end, the, the easiest way to kind of summarize this is that whatever it is that you set your eyes to, what happens? If you're moving, your feet always go where your eyes are set. They direct the body. If our eyes are set to heaven, well, it's going to prioritize where my feet go, what I see, what, what my perspective is. If it's not, well, that'll change. Light and darkness. Now, our Bible, your Bible, probably divides these sections um, in, into kind of like different classifications if you're, if you're looking through the text. I don't really like when, when the manuscripts do that because it, it indicates that like Jesus is playing hopscotch from one idea to the next. He's developing an idea, and that's what's important. Like There is a continuation to his train of thought here. He goes from the location of our treasury, revealing the essence of what a person values, to the natural consequences of having the right or the wrong perspective, to now, in verse 24, addressing the logical applications of these things to his disciples. Verse 24, what does he say? No one can serve two masters. And this word, serve, it's, it's worse than that. It's, you can't be a slave to two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one, despise the other. So Jesus' point, you cannot, cannot 
cannot, you can't do it, serve God in mammon. There's a little debate, a little bit, on the fringes about this word mammon, what it means. Most scholars, however, see mammon as being an ancient, not Greek word, but Aramaic term. And again, realize that there was different languages being used at the time. Greek, the predominant language. Aramaic, where Jesus is in, also in wide use. Kind of the language of the, the, the commoner, the everyday person. You cannot serve God and mammon, this word, this Aramaic word, for riches or, or literally money. Treasure. As his disciples, Jesus is making it crystal clear. And I mean, he's shooting straight, isn't he? The two things can never happen, cannot happen, ever at the same time. Friend, you can serve God. Totally possible. And you can serve money, mammon, riches, treasure. You can do that. You can serve either. What you can't do as you can't serve both at the same time. It's impossible. Understand, money. Money, money, money. Material possessions are fundamentally amoral. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that money, money is not a good thing. Money is not a bad thing. Money is just a thing. This is why in 1 Timothy, Paul cautions his friend. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not money. It's not a bad thing, not a good thing. It's just a thing. But it's the love of money. It's what Paul's speaking to. That is the root of all kinds of evil. That said, because money, not a good thing, not a bad thing, but a thing, is a necessary thing, right? you got to have money. It's hard to live without it. I've tried. There is no escaping the reality that because it's necessary, you got to have it, money demands some type of relationship with all of us. It's unavoidable. And again, regarding that relationship, there are only, my friend, two options. When it comes to money, it's a truth. You can try to, to disprove me. You'll prove me right. But you will either serve money or your money will serve you. But both can't happen at the same time. Pastor Joe Foch, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers, he said money either belongs to us or we belong to it. And it's true. And since this is true and it's the case, money really does present a very dangerous conundrum, right? If we can't serve two masters, and therefore we can't serve God and mammon, our money, it's essential that our money be kept into a proper place. Why? Or we'll run the risk of worshiping something other than God, serving something other than God. It's called idolatry. Again, building on this train of thought, it's why it's essential we value the eternal over the temporal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's also why it's important we keep our eyes singularly focused on the right things. If your eye is therefore good, your whole body will be full of light. Now before I address a surefire way that you can safeguard the pursuit of money usurping a necessary dependency on God for His provision, 
yet you have to know this. I need to tell you this. Money can be a terribly mean and taxing master. Here's why. It teases our compulsion towards greed, a fallen compulsion, as well as our inability to be content. If you had to summarize things you struggle with, we could all put contentment on our list, I think. Greed, another one. Money. It teases. It plays footsies with both of these, these compulsions within our fallenness. Benjamin Franklin once said that money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, money makes one. Like, understand, centering your life on the pursuit of money isn't really about money at all. If we're being honest, it's about the things that money promises us. That's what we're really pursuing. Security, safety, satisfaction. And sadly, not only will money fail to make good on the things that it promises to provide, it leaves us on a rat race, a hamster on a wheel, continuing search, a pursuit. But money, the pursuit of just a little more, will never end because you will always justify needing a little more. Never forget, the real measure of your wealth is how much you'd be worth if you lost all of your money. What your kids would think of you. What your community, how your community would view you. Took all your money away. What's left? That's you. Ultimately, I said there's a way to safeguard keeping, like, safeguard your heart. There's a way to keep money in its place. And the Bible says that the way to do this is tithing. That's why tithing is important. You see, the moment you get your paycheck and you instantly offer to God a portion of the first fruits, that act is keeping money in its proper place by acknowledging to your money, I don't serve you. I serve God. And therefore, my money exists to help me serve God. He gave it to me. In fact, when you tithe, you acknowledge that everything I have is really His anyway. And I've been entrusted to just be a good steward. To steward these things rightly. Christian, you've probably heard me say this before, but I'll say it. The calculation of a tithe. You know, people get all bent out of shape. How much should I give? I don't know, how much should you keep? Well, you're just saying that, Pastor. One thing I've learned about pastoring this church is that our financial resources have never been dependent upon you. It's the truth. We go through a pandemic where most of us aren't working, most of us are on unemployment, and you would think that there would be a, a shortfall. We saw God, what was it, a 40% increase? God taking care of this church, he doesn't need your money to do that. And as the pastor, I'm not here appealing to it. I'm speaking to you about you and money and where money exists in your life, in your heart. And the calculation of a tithe, should it be 10%? Should it be 12%? Should it always go up? Should it be five? What should it be? Well, if you're, if you're running on that, don't give because you haven't figured out the purpose in it yet. 
See, the calculation of a tithe is not figuring out a percentage of what you made you feel appropriate to give back to God. No. The calculation is the percentage of what is God's you find appropriate to keep for yourself. It's all His. He's the giver. You? Well, Jesus is clear who you are. You're a slave. Who are you a slave to? Again, I love the way that Jesus unpacks this thought because he immediately addresses an aspect of giving that we've all experienced. And that is the fact, without a doubt, unequivocally, giving, being faithful in this, man, it requires faith, doesn't it? I mean, faith. You can't do it without faith. You see, money provides a way that myself can be sufficient for itself. And yet a tie that forces me to trust that God can do more with less of my income than I can do with more of it. Well, I trust God. It's why, and it should be no great surprise, the great enemy of our faith and God's ability to provide is what? It's worry. Look at the train of thought, verse 25. Therefore, time you see a therefore, what is it there for? In light of everything we've been talking about, I say to you, so he's speaking to his disciples, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? And why should we not worry? To be anxious. Verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Look at them. Again, they're outside. He's like, look at these things. Think about them. Consider them. Don't allow the point to, to, be, to be lost. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns. Yet, amazingly, your heavenly Father, and again, it's not the heavenly Father of the birds, it's you he's talking to. Your Father feeds them. Are you, and this you is very emphatic, you, you, are you not of more value than they? Connect the dots. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Again, Jesus could be saying, like, you can't make yourself taller. That, that might be what he's saying. I think probably more accurately, like, does worry prolong your life? <laughs> Has, has worry ever really fixed anything in your life? I mean, be honest. I'm a worrier. So I'm speaking from personal experience. Man, man, God like karate chopped me all over the place as I'm working through this text. Boom, boom, neck blow. Like, Jesus, give me a break. Let me breathe for a moment. Worry. Worry about stuff. Has worry ever solved the problem? Has worry ever fixed anything? Won't you trust God? Again, it's not an accident that, that it's here in this passage. Jesus, again, he reinforces He doesn't just say, trust the sovereign God. He's like, you have a daddy in heaven. You have a father who loves you and wants to take care of you. He places that in the context of why are you worrying? Is he not trustworthy? Does he not love you? Is he not dependable? You see, friend, if you believe that God is good, if you believe He's in control, if you believe He loves you, then worry, worrying about provisions is inconsistent. You're doubting Him. 
In addition to food, Jesus continues, verse 28, and amazingly, we will get through the chapter. He says, so why do you worry about clothing? And again, this is a different culture, ancient world. People only really tended to have one article of clothing. It wasn't like us where we have a closet full of stuff. He says, don't worry about clothing. Consider, in this word, consider, consider well and know. The lilies of the field. Again, he's out on a hillside. So he's pulling illustrations that are right there in front of everyone. The lilies of the field. How they grow. And again, these were wild lilies. Like these were lilies that came about with zero human involvement. There wasn't a gardener that planted these lilies or tended to these lilies or watered these lilies other than God. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Effortlessly, naturally, they don't toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And King Solomon, you can go back and read, uh, was probably the, the, the wealthiest man to have ever lived and, and, and pursued material possessions. And yet Jesus is making this comparison. He's like, Solomon and all of his wealth and riches and stuff, this is pretty beautiful, isn't it? Now, if God closes the grass of the field, close the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much, how, how not much more clothe you and then he gets to the issue, right? Oh, and I'll use the old King James, ye, of little faith. If I could sum up the fundamental challenge that Jesus is giving his disciples, the, the challenge he's giving to you and I, if you consider yourself a disciple of his, all of these things boil down, the issue of faith boils down to a person and the way that we, that we view God our Father. Will God our Father truly take care of us? Versus a natural compulsion to worry and seek to take matters into our own hands to be sufficient. That's what Jesus is ultimately getting down to. Will you let go and let God, or will you grab hold and he'll stay there? Can you do more with less, or can you do more with less? Or more with more? Does God love you? Does he care about you? Why won't you trust him? Why are you worrying? Don't worry as a disciple. And again, we get back to this, like we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we can very quickly get into legalistic rules. 12 steps for financial freedom right here from the text. No, 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 no. Worry is a hard issue, isn't it? Worry is something that is internal. The only way that you can stop worrying is to replace that worry with a greater reality and knowledge and understanding of God. So if you're worrying, clearly your perspective of God is somehow skewed. So that's the issue to focus on. It's not doing this or doing that. It's about coming back and getting to know a person more intimately. Because when you do, there's no reason to worry. Verse 31. Therefore do not worry. Again, Jesus didn't give a lot of commands. That's about as strong in the original language as you can get. He's like, stop it. Don't worry. Stop worrying. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. These were the people within the audience. They would have seen them as not knowing God. You claim to know God. He's your father. These are the things the people that don't know God worry about. For your heavenly father knows 
what you need. All, all these things. And, and note, his priority here is needs, not wants. But, verse 33. And I, I want to just pause right there. Jesus here, in the progression, he's, he's saying, stop worrying. Don't worry. Stop it. Instead of worrying about these basic necessities, things that God has promised to take care of, we do need to occupy ourselves. So instead of worrying, seeking these stupid things, what does he say? But seek you, seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things that you are worrying about in the context will be added to you, be taken care of. I love the fact, it's worth pointing out, that in light of God's provisions and in the presence of our, our tendency to worry, that Jesus is not calling us to idleness, is he? No, he's saying you can do something. Seek two things, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Instead of worrying, seek my kingdom and seek my righteousness and everything you are worrying about will be taken care of. So there's a practical element to this. Now, Again, I love the fact that Jesus gives you and I two things to seek that apart from his involvement are impossible. We're to seek two things that we can't do anything about. Like the kingdom of God will only come when the king returns. Like you can't make the kingdom come. And his righteousness is not something that you can achieve. It's not your righteousness. Seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. No, no. Seek first his kingdom and, and his righteousness. This is an, a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness. This is not a righteousness that you can earn or achieve. It's something that must be given, imparted. As such, the idea here of seeking, it refers to our hearts craving something, longing for something. Notice this word first. Seek first. You know, when you hear the word first, it's, it's, it's very easy to think that Jesus is maybe Placing this in some type of numbering or a sequencing. First, and then you have second and third. Seek first. No, no. This word first in the Greek, it doesn't mean numbering or sequencing. It means placing something in a place of, of prominence and priority. You see, it's not just that the longing of his kingdom and our desire to live a righteous life should be placed at the top of our list. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying these things need to be the list. There's nothing else apart from these things on the list. Well, what about my wife? Shouldn't she be? Well, yes. And a secondary list that it will only be impacted by you seeking these two things. Because if you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, it'll, your, your relationship with your wife will be okay. I'll take care of those things. What about my kids? Different list. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. It's the only pursuit. American poet Gene Toomer, who's best associated with the Harlem Renaissance of the mid-1920s, but he later became a Quaker. He wrote, and I love this. I, I came across this quote and I loved it. He said, the only way to seek God is to seek God first. Deny the nayward, affirm the yayward. Be true to those stirrings and motions which he starts in us. Refuse priority to all else and be faithful to the sacred. To that I say amen. Jesus closes out the section, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
It's been said, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only zaps today of its joy. As Jesus' disciples, he wants us to trust him and then live in the moment accordingly. Not only is God in control of your life, but isn't it true that so much of what we end up worrying about, we look back and say, that was stupid. That was frivolous. I spent so much time wrapped up in that. There's a Scottish proverb that reads, not a Scottish, Swedish proverb, that reads to the effect that worry is something small that casts a large shadow. The shadow is much bigger than whatever the issue is. Winston Churchill, he would tell regarding worry of the story of an old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. I think we could say that's true when it comes to worry, right? Value, in closing, value things on earth that will last for eternity. And keep your eyes to heaven so that you can maintain the right perspective on earth. And serve God. And have your money aid in that pursuit. And trust that your Father is more than able to take care of all of your needs if you let Him. And instead of worrying, friend, may we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So, Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word and what it says. In Jesus' name, amen.